You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome to another edition of the Michigan Football Breakdown, focused on the offense with our man Al Borges. Al, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. How about you, man? Hey, man. Big Ten Championship. How about that? Back to back for the maize and blue as they are they are clearly one of the top teams in the country. Clearly a legitimate threat to win the whole damn thing. Uh, and, you know, but for the unfortunate absence of, of Blake Corum, of course, who was robbed of being a finalist for the Heisman by injury. Uh, man, but for that, this team really seems to be clicking on all cylinders, Al. Before we really get started, I want to remind you, if you like these breakdowns, be sure to like the video. Be sure to subscribe to the channel. That way you get a notification every time we do another video. Of course, the best way to always show love is to go over to MichiganInsider.com uh, and subscribe. For $1, you get in the first month, and a special going on right now. I haven't even mentioned this uh, anywhere yet. But if you're a monthly subscriber right now, you can upgrade to an annual for 50% off. That is a special nod to the monthly subscribers who have sort of been trying it out, trying it out, trying it out per month. Uh, can get you converted to an annual for 50%. Cannot beat that deal as we continue to get newbies in the door. Total no-brainer, Sam. Total yeah, no-brainer. Complete no-brainer. Absolutely. So, Coach Borges, you look back at the Wolverines in this game against Purdue, I, I think most of us expected for Michigan uh, to win handily in this game, and, and they did. Uh, but there were, some, there were some, some things that you saw along the way. And I'm talking – uh, most notably about what you saw from J.J. McCarthy in the way of his his technique and fundamentals, which you have harped on all season long. Not as much on air as you have off air. There were some signs in there that went beyond just Michigan doing what it's supposed to do against an opponent like Purdue. Yeah, I, I, I like some of the progress made by J.J. in this game. I thought he did a better job in this game of what I call pulling through throws. And by that, I mean collecting his feet, setting his hips, and driving a target. Uh, although there were times he still wasn't everything you wanted him to be, there was some headway made because he was getting getting his, his upper body thrust through every throw or pretty much every throw. And uh, even the misses, Sam, were fundamentally good, much, much better than I've seen. So uh, I think in that regard, he's taken a step. Now there's still steps to be taken. But I like some of the stuff I saw. Yeah, he uh, – the running game, of course, I expected for this to be a game where Michigan stepped in and whereas the, the matchup with Ohio State was more where they used the pass to, to really help open up the run. It, I mean, that was a part of it. I don't think they – yeah, there were opportunities early in that game against Ohio State not to really harp on that uh, even before the pass game got going that they weren't able to exploit but as the game went on, you could definitely see uh, that throwing first was the uh, was the edict in the game against Purdue. I saw it the other way around. Really felt like they were going to be able to run uh, run successfully throughout. Indiana had rushed for over 200 yards against them. 
and uh, we saw it was the Donovan Edwards show, especially coming out in the uh, out of the halftime locker room there. Al, yeah, yeah, and I thought a lot of it. You got to give some credit to Purdue. You know, Purdue had twenty seven first downs in this game. I mean, your goal. A really good first down game is to get 25, they're 27. So what happened, Sam, is they controlled the clock in the first half particularly and uh, kept Michigan from kind of getting into their game. Now, that changed. But in the first half, they kept it. They kept it very close. They played very sound on defense. And they made Michigan earn every yard. But before it was all said and done, it was Michigan again. They ran a duo play or a split zone 23 times during the course of the game, okay? They went right back to the womb, uh, 14 duos, nine split zones. Donovan Edwards was doing a, a fabulous job of, of beating the unblocked when the play got started, and we're going to show that in our telestrations later on. The other thing I was fired up about was they took five shots in the game. Now, they took seven last week, but they only ran 54, 55 plays in this game. So, the, And I think they probably would have taken a couple more had there been more plays run. But they took five shots in this game. They hit three of them. That's a very, very good percentage. And it really should have been four because the one to Roman, what they had to replay, that was an eyelash away from a, a nice big chunk of yardage. But one thing, again, and I've said this every week, I'm going to keep saying it, J.J.'s ability to improv is a huge factor in these big games. In the first drive, he came out to his left. And we don't telestrate improvs very often, do we, Sam? No, we don't. We got to show this because this is something I think that shows great growth by him. Came out to his left, waited to the very last second, shot a ball to Ronnie Bell for a first down. And then then, uh, the one – Blitz zero, and, and and Purdue did not blitz much. I had six pressures the whole game they ran. But they got inside the 20, and they pressured him against a five-man protection. They were short a man. He skipped out of the pro, uh, pocket and shot a ball to, to Luke for a touchdown. Again, a lot of guys would not even have got to that point. They'd have been sacked. So that improbability just continues to show up. I tell you what else continues to show up is second half. Yeah, It man. just seems. Every week, you know, every every week, and not every week, but it sure as hell seems like every week, we go into the locker room and all the fans are pissing and moaning about how, well, this game's too close. We're supposed to be ahead in this game, whether it was Maryland or whether it was Penn State or whether it was whoever, only to come out in the second half and the complexion of the football game completely change. And usually it's within the first three to four series that the game has gone completely. Usually well, it starts in the first series. It did in this game anyway, but by the end of the third quarter, you're starting to see how things are going the other way. I thought uh, the coaching staff did an excellent job of attacking uh, Purdue's three and 40 zones with a lot of stuff they did, some that hit, some that didn't, but with some open receivers, I thought they did a great job. Purdue is basically a one-high team. They were in one-high cover three type steals, Sam, about uh, 22 times in this game. They played cover four 18 times. They played split safety two six times. And the only zero blitzes that you really saw were the ones where uh, they were backed up goal line short yardage. They weren't, unlike Ohio State, they were not a zero blitz team in the middle of the field. So they they ran a uh, what I would call a low-risk defense, but a very sound defense. So uh, all told, uh, although there were some headaches, and I think a lot of it had to do 
with Purdue's offense doing a great job with their quick rhythm passing game and a good job of ball control, there were some headaches. But at the end of the day, what happened should have happened, and the way it happened was predictable. It just wasn't from the get-go. So, Yeah, so a couple of things. You know, we say when we're talking about Blake, who, again, a fantastic player, should be a Heisman Trophy finalist. So, I mean, you stack the box against Blake Corum, and he just doesn't really, doesn't really matter. Michigan can still do what it does. A lot of times it's because the line just gets them all blocked up. But when they don't, Blake is good in making one, two, three guys. He make one guy miss, you know, run through an arm tackle and then run over the last guy, right? Blake was doing that time and time again. And Donovan was great against Ohio State. But it wasn't a lot of those kinds of runs, right? He was, I mean, his two long runs, like he saw a crease. And it was just off to the races. How fast can you run? This was different. Al, where it was about great vision and sometimes terrific toughness. He comes out in the second half, makes a guy miss in the backfield and, and breaks off a duo, right? And is off to the races. And then the next series, he cuts back a split zone and just runs through like five guys just showing you that whatever Blake can do, I can do too. Yeah, it's amazing. And if you're the defensive coordinator, you're pissed. I mean, you're pissed. The the first duo play, and we're gonna, again, we're going to telestrate this because it was the essence of a double wing duo play, which we have not shown in a telestration. So we're going to show it later, but but you're just pissed because the defensive coordinator set it up so the ball got kicked to the corner, who was unblocked, who was instantly got doogie doogied and run by. Okay, mm-hmm. you know what doogie doogie is, Sam. I don't that's know what that is, but I assume. Well, that's 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 when you get your ankles broke, okay? okay. The guy puts a little dookie-dookie on you. And you look like you slipped on ice, okay? That guy looked like he slipped on ice. Then, if that wasn't bad enough, they call a split zone, and the safety falls back into the hole. Both these plays for normal backs are one- or two-yard gains. But he beats the guy in the hole, not past the second level, which we ask him to do, in the hole, and then breaks, I don't know how many tackles, and puts the ball in the end zone. So we'll always miss Blake Corman. We'll never minimize that because then you'll forget what he did for the team. But he has helped the Michigan fan base get over that and understand that they have a player that's certainly a capable replacement. Yeah, it was was another fantastic performance, over 400 yards in those two games. And lest we forget, with a broken hand. I mean, and his dad, we talked to his dad in the pregame. We talked to J.J. McCarthy's dad in the pregame as well. And they both talked about it, like Donovan. And I imagine this is probably what happened with Blake, too. But, you know, he said, I'm playing in that game. I'm not getting surgery right now. I'm playing in that game. And I imagine that that's what happened with Blake, too. They said, man, I'm going to give it a try. Now, Blake tried it. It couldn't go. Had a different injury, right? Different, different injury. In, different injury. Different injury. Jay uh, Donovan tried it, and you could see him. We talked about it. you. Could see him thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. Then it was evident they had to have him. First, they had to have JJ do his thing. Then you you got to have someone that can take advantage of the plays that are on the field, right? And Michigan was leaving running plays on the field, and so 
Donovan got, he found some place in his mind, Al, where he can sort of put that aside, whatever pain or discomfort he's feeling, whatever concentration he had to do, uh, put into handling the football, he was able to get to a place where the pain didn't matter and he was confident in handling the football with his left hand and then it was off to the races and he seemed to pick that right up heading into to, into the Purdue game. Yeah, and, and this is what's really tough. There's two factors involved that can really get in the mind of the ball carrier. One is that you have to constantly carry the ball in the non-dominant arm in his case, which is left. Mm-hmm. That's only part of it, Sam. The other part of it, you need to fend off defenders, whether it be straight arms or dropping shoulders for extra yards or whatever with the arm that the, with the, the hand that's injured. I think that came up on the long run. And I didn't notice it, but I was watching the game with Bobby Morrison. Bobby was a coach at Michigan for a Bobby long time. Morrison. Bobby that guy's still watching football. I know. I, I, I reduced myself to watching the game. And nobody else will hang out with me, so I got to call Bobby. But He's uh, the only guy who calls me numb nuts more than you. Oh, God. He's a beauty. But anyway, he is a good football coach, and he does understand the game. And, uh, you know, in that, in that you, can, you, have, you can have an intelligent conversation with him, kind of. But anyway, <laughs> Donovan broke up the left sideline. And it wasn't just Bobby. There were a bunch of people there watching the game with this. And Donovan ran out of bounds. And it didn't occur to me. Uh, and I said, God, why do you, he could have got to come on. Why didn't he run about? And Bobby says he was not going to risk using his right arm to get the extra yard. And I don't blame him. I wanted him to play the rest of the game, right? Because I don't think that's really his style. But that is intelligent to do in that situation. Why take an extra hit for an extra yard when you are the back they got right now? They're featuring. He's got. You're going to have to, you know, tote the ball twenty plus times. I thought it was a good move. So uh, that was a brilliant observation by Bobby, and he doesn't come up with a lot, but he did there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, take more shots of Bobby Morrison, man. Former well, if he was here, he'd be taking them right back. I promise oh, yeah, you that. He would. Former Michigan recruiting coordinator, for those who don't know, by and special teams coach, for those who don't know, Bobby. But, but yeah, protecting that hand, because that is not in his DNA. No. He absolutely no, is, so is a guy who's going to lower the boom as much as he can, and that he was still able. That, that tough run he had for his second touchdown, you know, run of the game. One of his best, maybe his best run of the year. It was tremendous to do that. And I've heard you say, you're going to come back and split zone. You better be right. Right? <laughs> you know, you're you're leaving the core of the blocking. That's right. You you're going to leave the double teams. You better gain some yards. And somehow he would be hard to argue with in a film session. You go, Donovan, where are you going? Where are you? Well, I guess that's okay. <laughs> right. That's a touchdown. That's a touchdown. And I'm curious your perspective being an offensive coach watching Purdue do what it did. We will get into this with, with Vance a little later. They were pretty methodical in that first half of moving the ball. Uh, got a lot of first downs. Think they had a first down advantage over Michigan. And people are asking, hey, what is, is something wrong with Michigan's defense? How's Purdue able to move the football uh, like this? And my novice perspective, Al, was this. Michigan's playing a lot of zone. They're predominantly a spot-dropping team. Against a West Coast offense, essentially, you know, you have a an accurate yeah. quarterback. You're gonna find some openings exactly. like that against a defensive uh, a defensive approach like that. Yeah, they're gonna peck at you. Good, well coached offensive football teams, in a particular West Coast style, with the sticks and the curl flats and all the little zone beaters, horizontal stretches, vertical stretches, uh, quick decision throws. That's what you saw, and. Uh, an efficient team that can hit those passes can raise hell. Now, had Purdue been able to run the ball a little better 
had they been able to run the ball a little better, which I think they only ran for uh, – what did they run for? They were only rushed for 90 yards at 2.4. Had they run the ball rep better, they'd have really been a headache. But Michigan wasn't going to let them do that. So uh, – uh, but their passing game was impressive, and their execution of their passing game was pretty consistent throughout. But uh, push comes to shove. If you have a preference of what you'd rather have, a really, really good run game, a really, really good pass game, you're always going to lean towards a run game as long as your pass game isn't terrible. And that's that's Michigan. They're always leaning towards a run game, and their pass game, I think, continues to improve. So as well as Purdue did, and they did, they were valiant in their effort. It just wasn't enough. Yeah, yeah, and so Michigan, they obviously stiffened uh, in the red zone throughout the game. They made some changes. They played tighter in the second half, but the biggest difference, uh, the emergence of, of Will Johnson. Now, since we're talking a little bit of recruiting, we're going to get into the questions here coming up, and I definitely want your, your take on TCU, and I want to get that. But the emergence of Will Johnson as a real factor on this team, I mean, what are you thinking as an offensive coach when you see a guy who the last three or four games, I mean, you look at the records, it's Rutgers, right? It's Rutgers. Okay, he got an interception against Rutgers. He gets in that Ohio State game. And he is matching up step for step, mano a mano with Marvin Harrison. And more than holding his own, doing a hell of a job. Then you come out here against Purdue and Charlie Jones, who is, is proof that Iowa is where receivers go to die because that guy was languishing in the starting lineup at, at Iowa, not doing anything. He goes to Purdue. He's a big-time pass catcher. And here, from the opening snap, Will drives on a on a little hitch there, hits him for a, a TFL. And then a little bit later on in the game, uh, he walls him off. It looks like he was trying to stem him a little bit. He jumps around him and gets an interception, then jumps another route for an interception. I'm curious, as a play caller, when you see a young fellow like that, you normally see a freshman as a fish. And this dude doesn't look like a fish anymore, Al. Fish? Holy smoke. If he's a fish, he's a shark. Uh, man, I mean, he's – how tall is he, Sam? He is – he is 6'2". Six 6'2". Two. Six two. Well, there's some problems. Now, in watching Will, from an offensive perspective, I would do one of two things, or both. Uh, I would try and double move him some because he's so instinctive, Okay. He's so instinct. He jumped on that slant. But sometimes you think that will work, and it don't. Because <laughs> he'll play that slant, and he's still good enough to turn and play the double move. Or I just throw away from him. You know, I throw, throw the other way and, and pick your spots, wait till he's a man-to-man, try and pick him. You know, do something that inhibits him from playing comfortably, okay? Because he looks at six foot two. You're going to play hell getting the ball over the top of him. I'm telling you, because he's got range. He's obviously got some quick twitch because he can break on routes, okay? And he's just a freshman. He doesn't really even know what he's doing yet, truth be told, because nobody could. But the more he plays, oh, my goodness, yeah, you're going to end up having to throw the ball away from him. Uh, Try and get your best receiver on somebody else if that's avoidable, if that's doable. But uh, he is he's an impressive football player, particularly at this stage in his career. No doubt, no doubt. All right, so, Al, uh, we're going to get back into focusing on your bitter and sweet and grace from this game. But before we do that, I know you. I know you've already started looking at TCU. So let, let, let's let's start first. Do you think the committee got it right with the four teams, four teams that they selected? 
as the playoff participants? And then number two, your initial take on TCU. Okay. Uh, and there's two, I have two answers to this because it's that, and you're going to say that's a cop out because I know you, but I don't care. Um, do they get it right from a justification perspective? Yeah, they did. TCU should probably be in. They lost one game. Are they the best four teams? There is no way you're going to ever convince me that they're better than Alabama. They play in a conference that's not as good as Alabama. If they played in the same conference, they'd probably lose three games, maybe more. Alabama lost two games by this much. And if you were picking the best four teams, and this is coming from an Auburn guy, I don't like Alabama, and I like the fact that they're not in it. But if you're picking the best four teams, they should be in it, in my opinion. But the way things shook out, it's acceptable that TCU's in. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, so what do you think about the Horn Frogs and their and their uh, and their team? Certainly their, their defense. I just don't think they've seen anything close to what Michigan is bringing to the table. Well, no. And let me tell you, here's the deal with them. And I've, I've really watched a lot of them. I mean, I don't, I got, you know, some people think I have no life. So all I do is watch football, but end up right. right. I watch football. I spend time with you. What kind of life is that? Now that I think about it, but anyway, um, they are set up defensively to to defend the spread. Basically they're a three man line team virtually 100% of the time they play. I think I've seen them in some form of four man line, maybe twice. But they are a three-man line, and they bring a five-man umbrella back end where they take one player, number 28, and he will be the hybrid player. He'll be half linebacker, half safety. He'll play deep third. Sometimes he'll come down into the box. But what they're doing is they play with these five defensive backs, and they play with three linebackers who shift wrong or strong. They shift weak. And they try and defend the run by involving number 28 in the run more. So they get that extra guy. And they try to defend the pass by rolling their corners up or changing their coverages on the back end to accommodate spread sets. It is probably the perfect defense for a team that sees 80 to 90% spread teams because they play it pretty good. They're tough. They get after you. They, 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 they make some big hits. Their issue to me is going to be how are they going to deal with defending extra gaps? Because they see virtually none of that. A little bit of it. Texas did a little bit of it to them. But as we've said, Michigan is a team that not only can spread you, but they can also condense. And when they condense, they condense with big bodies because they have a lot of tight ends. They 
force you to defend extra gaps, whether it's with a single wing formation and you got to defend an extra D gap, whether it's a double wing formation where you got to defend a D gap and I guess what you call an E gap. And then that forces the corner to be strong and run support. These are just things, Sam, they don't see all the time. And not certainly not with the frequency that Michigan's going to throw at them. They're depending a lot on moving their folks up front, slanting and doing all those kinds of things to, to get people free. And that's just not going to be easy to do when you consider Michigan's favorite run play as a duo. Okay. Or even a split zone, but a duo even more so because you've got all those bodies stepping down to, to cap off those gaps. So uh, they're going to be challenged defensively, but if somehow they can contain Michigan's ability to run and they can get into the past defenses that they're so accustomed to playing, they can make a pretty good game of it. But they're going to, the, the plus for them is they got time to, to work on how they want to go about defending Michigan. The minus is I don't know that they are equipped within their, their base scheme and system to do so. So we'll see. All right. So, Al, let's, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be tough. Look, that's not to say that they don't have. I think they're a gritty team. I think they deserve to be there. I disagree with the notion that they aren't one of the four best teams. I mean, is Alabama? Well, there you are. You're wrong again. Well, is is Alabama one of the four most talented teams? Yep. In the country, Alabama one of the four most well coached teams. Yes. Is Alabama playing the best conference? Yes. Can Alabama beat anybody in the country on any given day? Yes. And that's hard for me to say, but it's true. Well, that that may I know you as a as a former Auburn guy is choking on that, but I would continue. I okay, so they lost to an LSU team that just got destroyed by Georgia, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, I look around and I say that yeah, they they beat Texas. That's the common opponent, but they didn't beat Texas handily. They didn't handle mm-hmm. Texas. They handled Texas better than TCU did. I mean, what what did you see from Bama that makes you say they're a better team right now? That doesn't mean I'm not talking about who's more talented. Bama's definitely more talented. But how can you say they're a better team, given when you look at a common opponent, given when you look at who they lost to? I mean, at least when you look at who TCU lost to, they lost to a team they already beat, and it was in overtime, in overtime of a championship game. I'm, I'm sorry, Al, and they won every which way. Is the SEC a better league, and does that contribute to to uh, TCU's ability to weather the storms? Of course it does. Does it allow them to weather the mistakes better? Sure it does. But I would argue for as much talent as Bama has, Relative to their league, they should be able to do the same thing in the SEC that we just saw TCU do in the Big 12. And when you match them up with the same opponent, sure didn't look a whole lot different with how those teams matched well, up against Texas. I will say this. They have done the same thing over I don't know how many years. And minus about two plays, they'd have done it again. And that's eventually going to catch up with you when you've won six national championships. You're not going to get every one of those plays. So LSU throws a sprint flat. Guy catches in the quarter, scores, beats him. God bless him. They could have lost that game just as easy as they wanted. And the other game they lost was to Tennessee. Same situation. 
they barely beat them. You're going to lose eventually some of those games. I mean, and, and they lost two this year, which but they're still Alabama. The only thing I'd say about Alabama that I'm not as crazy about is they've been in the past. If you want to make a great, I don't think they run the ball like they have in the past. I don't think they have that featured runner they've had in the past, but they still have probably the best quarterback in the country. They still have what might be the soundest, most solid defensive football team. And although they haven't played fantastic on defense all year, they tend to play good in those kinds of games. So, uh, I mean, you can make cases both ways, but if you ask me why, how I can say that, my answer would be 43 years of coaching and watching how they play as opposed to how TCU plays. I just think they're a better team for whatever that's worth. Yeah, I hear you. All right. So, Al, let's get to your bitter and sweet and then your grades from this past game. Uh, As we do that, I want to go ahead and request to those of you out there who have questions for the man they call gorgeous, start putting them in the comments now. Now is the time for you to say, gorgeous, gorgeous, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? How do you think this matchup will go? Start getting those in the comments now after Al gets through his bitter and sweet and grades, and then I tell you about a great opportunity uh, for a digital collectible for you folks out there uh, to purchase. Then we'll get to your questions. So start getting the questions in there for Al now. Uh, the first, start with a bitter, I think the slow start again, you know, I think that was, and it wasn't all, it wasn't as bad as some of their other slow starts, but they got out possessed early in the game. And I don't think Michigan got as many turns uh, in terms of plays during the course of the game. And it kind of affected their flow a little bit, if that makes any sense. Um, they ran 26 plays in the first half. Okay. Uh, so that's, and that's not very many. So that, that. That hurt him a little bit that way. Um, there was a couple of shots, Sam, during the game. One everybody knows about to Roman that was uh, replayed that could have been a nice bite of yardage that J.J. could have thrown the ball where it could have been advanceable. There was a vertical smash play that he had to leave the pocket on that was a great chance to get a big bite. There was a, what I call a stick nod where a guy, uh, Roman was doing Randall out and up inside of two deep ran by the guy that we didn't get to that throw. And those types of things, there was about three or four plays that could have really affected a better first half, okay? So that was a deal. I think we could have perimeter blocked better. I think we had a few deals. J.J. pulled the ball in a bluff play and didn't get enough help on the outside. That play should have worked better than it did. We threw a little uh, spot route to the outside, and we mistargeted it, and the receiver got hit as soon as he got So I think that could have been better. And the only thing, the, the only egregious play of the whole game that, that J.J. made was the interception, and he caught himself in the back of the pocket wandering around with great pass protection and kind of turned a little willy-nilly and threw the ball late and he intercepted it. But uh, that really was only, the only play you could say, oh, my God, what are you doing? And he, I'm sure he'll learn from that. But for the most part, those are the only things. that I went over every play just to find something that I would – Worth mentioning because you know there's minuses. So I find minus. Oh, this guy didn't do a very good job here. But but those are just pieces. Those those aren't really really uh, uh, bad plays that, that affected the game drastically. From the sweet end, uh, I really thought JJ's fundamentals got better. Now they're not where they need to be, but they're still better. He's driving more throws. He's getting in the fight more, and he's pulling through more passes. And I really like that. Loveland, who only caught one pass, but he continues, Sam, to show up. You know, 
he continues to show up. He went out, went up and rebounded that ball uh, for that first touchdown, like Shaquille O'Neal. And I was, I was really impressed with that. And as I mentioned, uh, JJ's improv skills, uh, running to the left, throwing for a first down, breaking the pocket with a, with a, with a, when they're short blockers in protection and throwing a touchdown, we hit three out of five shots could have hit four. If they would have, they would have given uh, Roman that catch. I really like that approach because it's, it's, it's getting that defense off. You know, they're playing up tight and they're taking the ball behind him and they're making him pay for it. Okay. Uh, great second half. Again, another time. I don't know what they're doing. They're telling him at halftime, but it sure is working out good. I mean, they're coming out. You know, what's funny, Sam. I watched the schemes, the second half. They're not really in a different, different than the first half offensively. Now, defensively, they may be switches and stuff, but they're just running kind of the same plays they ran in the first half. They're just running them better and with more opportunities because Purdue didn't control the ball quite as much in the second half. And the other last, I got to mention the, the creative two-point conversion, which was kind of cool. We'll talk about that in the telestration, but I like the way they did that. But I just think overall that the, uh, the play, again, the totality of the game, they played pretty darn good. But uh, the first half, they just did not really get in rhythm, and I think a lot of that had to do with Purdue. All right. So your grades, Coach Borges. Well, the old line I gave a B plus. I thought they played pretty good for the most part. I only had them with fourteen minus. Of course, that's only fifty something plays. They were they were going to be less. Olu, uh, Olu continues to play well. I mean, I go through every play, Sam, and I I just look at the guys that that uh, their guy makes the tackle. They don't finish a block. They don't do whatever. And week in and week out, uh, Olu has the least on the whole team. Mm-hmm. He just does not get beat. He, he'll have an occasional one, but. Not much, uh, but they played pretty good. I gave the tight ends a, a C plus. They had ten minuses. There's a few opportunities there where I thought the blocking could have been better, but uh, for the most part, they weren't bad. But they could be better. Wide receivers, I gave a B minus. I'd have given them a B or better, but I just thought the perimeter blocking could have been better in this game. Uh, running backs, I gave an A. I mean, what are you going to do, man? I mean, he was on fire again. I uh, had two minuses, but I think only one of them was, was by Donovan. And I gave J.J. a B-plus. J.J. Was, uh, uh, had him with six minuses, but the only real egregious one was the interception. Uh, he had a couple opportunities that he missed, and those were ones I kind of graded him down on. But for every one of those, Sam, there was a big play he made that another quarterback couldn't make. So uh, if he can find a way to make those other plays, add to that his improv plays. Holy Toledo, you got John Elway now. You know, so uh, – so I think uh, for the most part, it was a good overall performance uh, by a team that uh, I think is on path to play for the national championship. I'd be a little shocked. I don't want to give them the kiss of death, but but uh, they take care of business every week. And sometimes they have to come back or play better in the second half in a close game to do it. So I just think there's a the character, the leadership, the skill set, and the toughness to be everything they want to be. Yeah, so as we uh, get ready to get the questions for Al answered, folks, uh, I want to tell you about a great opportunity. I've talked about it in the last couple of of episodes here of the Michigan Football Breakdown. But the new digital collectible uh, that is offered by Distinct, Distinct, uh, a new company that is looking to corner the digital collectible marketplace especially when it comes to audio content, 
and audio content relevant to you Michigan fans out there. And as a result, uh, and in furtherance of that goal, they they partnered with Jim Harbaugh for the Ann Arbor Digital Collectible. Ann Arbor featuring Jim Harbaugh is the first audio digital collectible available as part of their College Town collection. Uh, It evokes the sights and sounds of the town and resonates with everyone who spent time here in Ann Arbor. Uh, And like the voice of Ann Arbor digital collectible, Jim Jim Harbaugh has felt it. You are able to experience it through his lens and with his voice. And as always, with Distinct Digital Collectibles, all owners of Ann Arbor will be privy to specially themed utilities, benefits, and experiences like the one that they issued just last week to commemorate Michigan's victory over Ohio State a specially themed print to signify, to signal, to commemorate the thrashing of the Buckeyes. It was sent out exclusively last week to Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor owners. Uh, and there are going to be other themed, uh, other themed objects like that or collect- collectibles like that. And there will also be invitations to special events. I mean, what if you, and I'm just throwing these out as hypotheticals, not saying that they're definitely going to happen, but what if you had a breakdown like this with a certain coach on the other end, sitting in gorgeous Borges' seat? Or what if you had a chalk talk like we do with the Monday morning quarterback, Devin Gardner, with a guy who's playing quarterback right now? Those are the kinds of things that are being tossed around by the folks from Distinct, which, by the way, uh, it was co-founded by Jimmy McLeod, who's a Michigan School of Business grad. And those opportunities will be available exclusively to owners of this digital collectible. You can find it at distinct.so. Again, that is distinct.so. Only a 1,000 were, were commissioned. So I don't know how many they have left, but I know all 1,000, all 1,000 are still there. So if you're interested, again, go to, to distinct.so for more information. I think you'll see the one uh, that they have up now with, with Boston, where they've teamed with Bill Walton, one that they've teamed with uh, team with Jim Harbaugh for right here in Ann Arbor and other digital collectibles going up. And just to give you a glimpse, a piece, uh, a sign, a word from Jim himself, here's Jim talking about his partnership with Distinct. There's no better feeling than to be part of a team, part of a community, community, part of a university, uh, feel like you belong, you know, and that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's pretty much the whole ball game. And there you have it, distinct.so. Get yours now. All right. And now it is time to get to the questions for gorgeous Al Borges. And I'll start off first with one that has been uh, prevalent that I've seen, not just in this chat, but in uh, this was a question that came across on Monday Morning Quarterback with Devin. How do you feel about Michigan heading into this playoff, Al, and their chances of? bringing home a national championship compared to how you felt heading into last year's. Let's let's set aside that you know the outcome of last year's. I want you to compare your feeling now 
to your feeling at the same stage last year heading into the semifinal with with Georgia? Well, I I didn't feel that bad last year. I knew Georgia was imposing, okay? And on paper, probably had better talent, but I really was anticipating a little better game. But this year, because of the skill set of the quarterback and the void that's been filled losing Corm, I feel much better about their chances. That coupled with the fact that uh, I think we match up pretty good with TCU, and I think we match up much better if we get to that point with Georgia or Ohio, or Ohio State. So um, I don't think the field is quite as imposing because I think Georgia had a rare football team. They're not – they don't have Jordan Davis. They don't have – they're still good, but they're not – I don't think they're like that. And the other – we've already beaten Ohio State, and like I said, I don't. I think the matchup against TCU is pretty good, although they have some weapons – it could be very, very dangerous. Uh, I like our chances better this year. Yeah, specifically at the quarterback position. And I, no I, wanted, to make it, I wanted to make it a point to not to, – to make it a comparative analysis and not a slight. You know, when you talk about what Michigan has available to it at the quarterback position compared to what they had available to it at the, it had available to it at the quarterback position last year, it just feels like there's some more dynamism there that – might serve might serve the purpose of getting them over some of these humps that you have to get over when it comes to winning a national title. I totally agree. I, and you saw some of that in the Ohio State game because that's the caliber you're going to play now, right? Mm-hmm. Is our quarterback or Michigan's quarterback had the ability to carry the team on his shoulders a little bit. He wasn't all by himself, but certainly was. he was a huge part of being able to win in Columbus. So uh, I can just see – I don't know. I think I think you got a different football team. A lot of similar things to last year, but it's still different on both sides of the ball. All right, Al, let's get into um, more of these questions. You sort of touched on this before, but Sean Patterson said, hey, Al, what type of defense is TCU schematically and philosophically? Can't wait to hear your take on the Horn Frogs. You already got into this a little bit, but get into it a little bit. Yeah, let's 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 take it another step. Let's just start with the idea. They are a three man line. Okay. They play a three-man line, and the the back end of their defense is basically a five-across look, okay? That's unusual, right? Because usually it's a four-across look, and sometimes it's a three-one-high look, okay? Much like Illinois did. They're a five-across look, meaning the middle safety is a hybrid-type player. Number 28 plays that position most of the time. He will play deep third, or he will sink into the box and play run and add, be an add-in type player for their front. They play with three linebackers who will shift strong or shift weak. And oftentimes the rotation will shift in the opposite direction. The linebackers do. Okay. They are the guys that do all the pressuring. Okay. You don't get a lot of blitzes out of the back end that those five, the corner will occasionally blitz, but most of the time it's those three linebackers doing all the pressuring. Okay. They will play combinations of two deep, with a robber, with that that twenty eight guy sinking in the middle, three deep with twenty eight playing deep, and the corners and safety corners or safeties playing the deep third, depending on whether they roll the corners or back the corners off. They will play cover one one high, okay. Usually coupled with some type of a one man pressure. They're not a big zero blitz team. I think I've seen them maybe once or twice in all the videos I've looked at. So they're going to try and apply their pressures with four and five guys coming from different spots 
from the three-man front. Uh, that's how they're going to go about getting after the quarterback. But basically, the what I see is the defense is geared to their conference. It is geared to all the spread teams that they see because it matches spread teams really well, playing with those those five defensive backs and and, and, and mobile linebackers, three-man line. It matches those guys. The question is, if in three weeks or four weeks, whatever the game is, they can put together a plan that can accommodate defending Michigan style of play, which is to me completely different than anything they see in the Big 12 conference. All right. Keeping with that theme, Brian Muleman says, Al, how would you attack TCU? And what glaring weakness in that defense would you attack and how? Well, I don't know that it's been a glaring weakness, but I would pound their ass, okay? I would line up and do what Michigan does and then play pass. I would force those safeties to come up and get involved in the run and then play pass off those looks and try and take the ball over their head, which looks doable to me. I, I don't know if that'll maybe, – maybe they'll play all that stuff. I don't know, but I would pound their ass. And I'm sure Michigan's on the same page there because that's kind of their culture anyway. Yeah, I said, I mean, I just don't know what you see if you're TCU, what you see like this. That that you can you can demo it all you want, you can scout team it all you want, you want, and it won't come close, Al. No, the closest game I watched, Sam, the closest game I watched to some type of multiple tight end look was Texas. And they did it some, but they don't do it anywhere near as effect efficiently or as often as Michigan does. So uh It'll be a challenge for them, and we'll see All how right. that works out. So here's one that sort of f- fits with a uh, a talking point for you for, for some time, Al. Jason Witt says, I love J.J., but he is still missing layup passes. Those balls in the dirt need to be worked on. He didn't have as many in this last no, game. There, there were no, some. He, no, he didn't have the – he didn't have a lot of pitch and catch bad throws. And Now, a couple games ago, uh, there was a few. Illinois. But those haven't been uh, – you know, he, he missed on a ball down the middle – to Ronnie, and he actually used pretty good fundamentals. He just overthrew him just a little bit. The the ball to Roman coming over the top on the deep over, he didn't quite get his hip set to it, and it was a little bit too much arm throw, but it was, wasn't was bad in terms of, of driving the throw. You know, he, he, he stepped up in the pocket. Uh, again, I think answering that question is is really kind of simple. Just, just be fundamentally sound, get your hips in position, drive through the throws, finish low, and do the things that the quarterback has to do when there's a lot of traffic in the pocket, because that's when it's really the most critical. It should be easy when there isn't any. Mm-hmm. All right. Back to more questions for gorgeous Al Borges. Uh, moving on to the next one. Do you think Al, Wade McGann says, Sam and Al, great job as usual. Do you think we'll have a similar game plan of the PSU game for TCU? Uh, yeah, I would say it'd be similar. Yeah. Although the defense, uh, completely different. Um, I believe, uh, PSU is a four man line with three man line variations. Uh, but you know, I, in answer to that, when you're putting together a game plan, I think the key is not to depart from what you do best, continue to do what you're best, do best, add some nuance, not so much nuance that you're trying to reinvent the wheel. And that can be done when you got a lot of time between games. You got to be careful of uh, eating too much candy at the candy store and getting sick. You know what I mean? So you got to be careful on that. Uh, but I don't think you're going to see, I think you're going to see 50 duo plays. Now, how they go to duo plays, you may get shifts and 
all that other stuff and every which way, man in motion, you name it. But I think you're going to get 15 duo plays as long as they're allowed to run 15 duo plays, you know, based on how many times they get the ball. You're going to get split zones. You're going to get a few counter plays just to see how they handle it. And that's going to be your plan. But it's going to probably be colored different ways. And then within that, they're going to add some nuance, maybe a different shot off a different action or a different uh, formation, different motion, a different shift, something that they're familiar with, but the defense can't line up. and Oh, here comes this play. Here comes this play. They'll, 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 they've done a great job of this all year, and it will be no different in this football game. It'll be their base offense, a little bit of nuance, and a lot of window dressing. All right, moving on. Uh, here's a blank night, so, and he should, who shall go nameless. This is a like, lot like Auburn back in the day talking about uh, Blake and Donovan. If Cadillac Williams got hurt, Auburn would not skip a beat with Ronnie Brown out there. That's right up your alley, Al Borges. Well, that, yeah, well, that brings a tear to my eye, that question. Um, the only problem with that back then is we played Ronnie and Blake at this, uh, Ronnie and uh, Cadillac at the same time, about two thirds of the time. So it would still, it would be painful to lose Ronnie Brown because we used him some at fullback where Michigan doesn't really do that. But that point is well taken. We were lucky enough that if we did lose a great back, we replaced him with a great back and not, but not very many teams can do that. So. All right. Next question for Al Borges. It's moving on. Uh, you know, so. Michigan won this game 43 to 22. But Al, why were only 17 passes called for the offense in the Big Ten championship game? Especially when JJ was 11 for 17 with some accurate throws. Was Harbaugh going vanilla on us again? I'm going to remind you they won 43 to 22, Al Borges. Okay, let me explain because that's a great question, which I would ask too. Uh, the average football game, and I think Michigan, and I'm, a, I'm this is going to be a guesstimate, so indulge me here a little bit. But I go back and get you an exact figure. Michigan generally in a football game runs approximately 68 to 72 plays, I would guess, right in there, okay? That's not way off. Well, in this football game, they ran uh, – let me get this straight here, boys. 54, I believe, mm-hmm. or 58. I can't remember exactly. I'm going to tell you here in just a second. They ran 56 plays in this game. All right, so that's how many less than what they would normally run? Probably 14, right? 14, 15 plays? Okay, so with those less 14 or 15 plays, what are you going to do? You're going to run the ball? You're going to pass the ball? So if it goes to the normal deal, and remember, Purdue controlled the clock on them some. They only ran 20 plays in the first half. So there's less turns. You've got to choose what can win the game with those turns. And they felt, particularly in the second half, that the run game was a much better option than the pass game was. Not that they weren't going to throw the ball. But you were going to, you were only going to get, in a 56-play game, you're lucky if you're going to get 20 throws with a team that runs the ball with the efficiency that they do. Had it gone to 70 plays, you would have got 25 to 30 throws. So, well, so I think part that's of the strategy, Talk to me about part of the strategy uh, of a head coach part of the strategy of an offense. You kind of spoke to this when you came in with Brady. You said, hey, uh, I guess he told you we're going to protect the defense, Al. Vance was talking talking about this last week when he worked for Urban Meyer. He said, look, we're going to protect the defense with our offense. Defense was on the field a whole hell of a lot in the first half. Now, they had to tighten up themselves and get off the field themselves, right, do a better job of that, maybe play a little bit tighter coverage, make some more plays. But running the football lends itself – to giving the defense a blow, at least when you're running for 60-yard 
chucks like Michigan did Absolutely. out of the gate, right? Yeah, I don't want to relive that, but I will say this. When I came to Michigan, the the defense was so bad. when we It was just statistically bad running. And Brady, being a defensive coach, says, number one, I don't want to go fast. And that's what Rodriguez wanted to always go fast. He goes, well, his volume of plays was 77 to 80 plays a game, and they led the country in three and outs. So I said, I'm fine with that. We don't have that's to go fast. That's why I Urban in. I hate, I hate citing Urban as a, as a reference. Hate I didn't use Urban. <laughs> but one of the things that he would say to them down in Florida, where they won a couple national championships, hey, we're going to protect it. And they had a lot of dogs on defense. We're yeah, going right. to protect our defense with our offense. Right. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to protect our defense by not going fast and playing hard nose, blah, blah, blah. And uh, But that was going to mean you weren't going to get the big numbers in total offense. Although we averaged scoring more points than they did the previous year, even running probably 15 less plays. So, but the, the turn was, the deal was, is we got weapons to move the ball offensively, but we want to make sure our defense improved. And it went drastic. It was drastically better. They went from defending 77 or 78 plays a game to defending 63 plays a game. And a lot, a lot of that was how good they were, but a lot of it was because we decided that we were going to be more methodical. So I don't know if that, makes that even answers any questions but the one thing to understand is when you run the football and you don't hurry up time of possession is a huge factor but it does if or can i will say this, it can affect point totals and total yardage totals but the idea is to win and whatever it takes to win you do that and it caters to team football good offense good defense good special teams and those are the great teams in my opinion all right Moving down the line for the questions. Oh, this is a good one, Al. This is a really good one. Evan Corson, why would an OC call RPOs, and why wouldn't an OC call RPOs? Well, here's the deal. That is a good question. Who asked that right. question? Send him, right. uh, send him like a badge Evan or Corson something. Evan that question. Yeah, Evan Corson. Good job, Evan. Uh, uh, I'm going to do my best to answer that question. Sam and I have kind of covered this to a degree over with a lot of different – you have to decide when with your run game, are your backs good enough to win loaded box scenarios? If you think that you can win enough of those to warrant not using as many RPOs or, and I put RPOs with play action passes because that's a huge part of keeping people out of the box, right, Sam? Uh-huh. But RPOs, since we're talking about RPOs, we'll stay with RPOs. If you don't feel you can win those matchups, you have to find a way to compensate for that add-in, that extra player that's hitting our back and minimizing the damage in our run game. Now, Michigan is not affected that much by that, only occasionally because their backs are capable of running and beating with a little dookie-dookie sometimes the extra defender. Okay, now you don't have Blake Corum. Maybe you don't have Donovan Edwards. How do you beat the extra defender? You add in a quick pass throw within the run play that you can exploit that add-in defender. So that's why you would or you wouldn't. You would if you didn't feel you could beat that extra defender with your with your run with your running back, or uh, so you would have to have something to compensate for that, whether it be an RPO or an occasional play action pass. All I hope right. that answers the question. I think so. Um, moving on. And so this kind of gets into uh, more of a strategy question against Georgia. What should the Michigan coaching staff 
do differently against Georgia than what they did last year? My first response would be, I would RPO that. I'm not a play caller. You're more, you're obviously an experienced veteran, super duper veteran play caller. Uh, That was certainly the elixir for Georgia against Michigan last year, Michigan stack defense. We're going to balance the equation with RPOs and it was wildly effective for them. How would you attack Georgia differently this year, if at all? Well, that would that would be one thing. I might have to add a couple more RPOs because they're pretty physical up front. They're not going to be that typical team, maybe, that your back can win all those matchups all the time. So you may have to add. You may have to throw five or six, maybe seven RPOs in the game. Now, they threw a bunch on their end. you got to remember something last year, and that people are quick to forget this, is their offensive coordinator was in a zone with play calling and was on the same page as a quarterback. They threw, I don't know, 13 RPOs, I think, in the first half, and their success rate was like 11 out of 13. And that had an effect on how Michigan played offense because they were in a backpedal a lot of the game. Uh, And it affected how much we could use Aiden and Ajabo in pass rush situations because they just weren't in a lot of third and long. So that all affected the way the whole game went. I know that's a defensive issue, but that affected the way the whole game went. So they're just going to have to evaluate whether they think they can pound that, that duo play if, if, if one of many in there with the efficiency to not have to use a lot of RPOs or not have to add three or four play action passes, which may or may not be, they may not be able to do, or they may have to do. You know, just depends. And that's a calculation that you have to make when you study the film. Georgia's damn good. I've watched Georgia, but I don't think they're as good as they were a year ago. So I think matchup wise and the quarterbacks being a a more dynamic entity, uh, I think it's a different deal. All right. Uh, Moving on. So this is another interesting question from Evan Corson. Boy, you're a plant, Evan. How much coaching? is involved as an OC? This is a great question. I'm not sure. I don't know where to stop with that one. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about coaching. The offensive coordinator is responsible for half the ball. So, so this is, is what I think he means. This is what I think he means. How much positional coaching? How much technique? and how, how much of that are you actually coaching when you're a play caller? Is it is it less than when you're a pure position coach no. or do you, or, or are you as involved with the, well, other I understand now. Yeah, I, are, I you, are you, are you charging your GAs yeah. and your, your coaching assistants more with doing that? Yeah. That now I understand. I wasn't sure I understand that question, but that, no, that's a damn good question. Uh, here's the deal in college, because the coordinator usually coaches the quarterback. Now he doesn't hear, or he kind of does. Okay. One of them does anyway. Uh, you, you have to coach as hard as any assistant on the field. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You have to coach the same fundamentals that Sharon Moore is coaching the tackle or whoever. Mike Hart is coaching the running back. That is no different. And if that's if you give that up, you're, you're, you're not doing a very good job, in my humble opinion. Now, when I was at San Diego State, Brian Seip coached the quarterbacks. The only time in my career for two years at San Diego State, I was what you call a walk-around coordinator. Uh-huh. Well, it kind of drove me out of my mind because, and I probably drove Brian out of his mind, but fortunately it was a great marriage. He, we complimented each other very well. But back then I did not do as much hands-on coaching as I did at Michigan or everywhere else that I've been. 
The plus side to that is I could spend time in every offensive meeting, Sam. I could go to the receivers for five, ten minutes, make a point I want to make off a video, jump over to the offensive line, talk to them, make a point I want to make with them, go back over to the tight ends. The old position group could hear from me, albeit on, on a brief, for a brief time, but I was involved more in the entire offense than I was at any other time in my career. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I've seen some coordinators do that walk-around thing where technically they have a position coach title, but you have like a really good GA, you know, uh, kind of helping at that. Like if they're really, really good, you have them helping at that at that position, right? Or maybe your head coach has expertise at a position where they can maybe fill in right. fill in some gaps if you're walking around as an OC or a DC. Uh, but there, you you talk about economy of offense, economy of time, Al, because this is something that I've seen universally with UOCs and DCs. There is not the same amount of time to dedicate to recruiting that you had when you were exclusively a position coach. It's just, I, I just don't come across coordinators who do it like they did it when they were purely position coaches. Well, there's a reason for that too, because when push comes to shove, most guys will never admit this, but the truth be told is they would much rather be noted for their ability to to coordinate than they would recruit because their name is on it. Okay. It's it's Al Borges' offense or it's, it's whoever's offense when they're not necessarily named like that, but in their mind, they are coordinating that side of the ball. So they're saying, Boy, if the offense doesn't look good, that is a direct reflection on me. So they'll give up some in their own mind. Some guys, some guys will anyway, uh, to make sure that the offense is everybody's blocking the right guys, everybody's running the right routes. You know, you're doing your offseason study. It's just a different job, and it's a different job too in pro ball, Sam. Because in pro ball, most offensive coordinators are not coaching the quarterback, oh. so uh, they're more walk around guys that have to do kind of what I did at San Diego State. So, you know, it's based on the dynamic, the job can be a little different. I remember I went to the San, I interviewed with San Diego Chargers back in 1998, and I went in, Mike Riley was a coach. He says, Al, do you want to coach Ryan Leaf? Because I got a quarterback coach uh, that will coach him. And he says, I said, well, I, I don't know. I just coached Cade McDonough. I think I might want to coach him. He says, well, Al, do you uh, – I'm going to have Joe Bugle be the run game coordinator. I said, well, I've never, you know, I, I, I've always coordinated everything. He says, but since Joe's been in the league and very experienced, that's good. He goes, and Al, I think, I think I want to call the plays. And I looked at Mike, I said, Mike, what the hell do you want me to do? And that was something I just wasn't used to. You know what I mean? I wasn't used to that level having that much responsibility relinquished to so many other coaches. So the dynamic always, always uh, dictates yeah, I read an article about Kirby Smart, who has been adamant in deferring some of the praise uh, for them as coaches. He said, you know, yeah, I, I'd like to, um, you know, I definitely we have good coaches here, really good coaches. He said, but we got to go get ball players. We got to go get really talented ball players. And the way in which they do that is they they target their coordinators. Their Their position coaches are the heavy lifters. Uh, the head coach is the ultimate closer, right? He can't be on every guy, but you got to have him be on, on the top guys, unless you're like Mario Cristobal and like you're, that's like your primary thing where it seems like that's your number one job. Most coaches, 
uh, handle it like, you know, they're they're touching recruiting in, in multiple spots as opposed to having a head, head coach who is like a primary guy. Only a few yeah. guys like that. But then, you know, I, I've seen Georgia, for instance, kind of treat their coordinators as like the next level, the next rung of not necessarily as spotty as the head coach who has to do offense and defense, but using your coordinator on offense to kind of be your spot guy. Maybe they're recruiting their position pretty hard, but you are a drop. So Sharon, for instance, I'll use Sharon as an example. When Sharon was a position coach, he was recruiting offense and defense, Al. He was he was recruiting Dax Hill. He was recruiting Darion Green-Warren. He was all over the top guys offensively and defensively in Chicago. He was all over the place, all over the country. Now, you don't see him recruiting defensive guys as often. There are a few where he still drops in on in the early stages of, of their recruitments as positional guys. But, you know, you are messing with the economy of his time as a play caller, which you saw Michigan really do under Courtney Morgan. And one of the things that Courtney did with Josh Gaddis was he started really targeting him. He's like, hey, man, coordinate the offense. I remember talking to Courtney uh, about this, his strategy. He's like, I got to get guys out of region on campus twice, at least twice, if we're going to have a chance. And my coordinators, I got to use them as as sort of like a head coach, but on that side of the ball where I'm dropping them on yeah. specific guys, right? And mm-hmm. so you're making sure that they can handle their primary job or coordinating, but at the same time, they're still, their influence is still really felt in, in recruiting. And in that cycle, it proved to be really effective. Yeah, in all my years coaching, I have heard and talked to a lot of guys that have been fired, okay? Because if you haven't been fired, you probably haven't coached. I have heard of, in several instances, where the head coach cited the coach's inability to recruit as the number one reason they were let go or they weren't getting guys at positions that they needed in all my years coaching. I have never heard of a coordinator being fired because he wasn't a good recruiter. Now that there may be, that might be the case, but it was never the reason anyone ever cited for, for, uh, for getting rid of a coordinator. So I don't, I don't know what that means, but, that's an observation that I've seen. Yeah, I would ask if, if if you have a coordinator that is an outstanding recruiter, which I'm sure there, there are. There are some oh, sort sure of people, yeah, which sure you can are. really feel them in the places that they're placed, whether it's yeah. their position or in the spots that they're dropped. But if you see them like recruiting all over the board, I would also ask, well, how good of a coordinator are they? Like some of them, yeah. some of the guys who you know as great, recruit great recruiters as coordinators how good of a coordinator are they also yeah, i don't know i don't it's, know I, I, I know a few guys that made that transition and were noted as great recruiters but now, were no longer after that now i don't think you can be a zero no i, I don't yeah, think it, you can be a guy you gotta sell your care. offense right you gotta yeah, you sell your offense in recruiting i mean you you are fundamental in the recruiting of every single position Mm-hmm. Right, so you got to be able to have some presence that helps get that guy across the finish line. Quarterback—I don't care whether you're a quarterback coach helping recruit receivers or receiver coach helping to recruit quarterbacks. Man, you better be able to sell to sell that vision to that well, guy in we, that position. We had a thing at Michigan uh, when the kid came on a visit; he never left the building without talking to the coordinator. 
and his parents too. He had to, because the coordinator was the guy that had to give him the plan. And every kid wants to know you have a plan for him. Mm-hmm. And that was my job is they'd come in and we would talk about what your short-term plan was, what your long-term plan was, how you're going to fit into the schemes. It just made them feel better about their direction, I think. Mm-hmm. A couple of little quick hitter questions, because yeah, I sort of went off on a tangent like that with that. So I want to get a few quick hitters in, Al try to be succinct with these that's tough for me too al to be succinct but here you go uh do you think we see more khalil mullings and extended drives a big feature back to give donovan a blow and where does stokes factor in now well first stokes has got to factor in because there is he's the backup or has been the the backup to donovan and i think mullins brings something to the table mm-hmm. he is a powerful guy inside the tackles. I, I've not seen him run outside, so I don't know what his speed or his vision or his, you know, when you run the ball outside, so much of it is setting blocks up. And I don't know if how good big backs are at that. Some are, but I haven't seen enough of that to know. But I think both those guys have to be a factor. Now, don't look for them to be rushing for 100 plus yards because I think Donovan's going to be the guy that does that for the most part as long as he stays healthy. But they have to take some pressure off Donovan, take a few hits off Donovan, and then situationally add to the equation, whether it be Mullen, Mullen's coming in in third down and two and be able to muscle the ball for two yards and a first down or, or uh, driving the ball into the end zone, whatever it takes. But I don't think it can be completely the Donovan Edwards show. All right, Brian Muleman, what can be done to get Andre Anthony rolling like Edwards and McCarthy? I think Gosh, they tried that is one hell of a question because I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and I know there was some high expectations for Andrell. And I, boy, I, I, I just loved him because he looked like he could really run. But for some reason, he just, he, he's got to work on his route running. He's got to get open more often so that there's a confidence level between him and a quarterback so that he sees him as a go to receiver. That's when receivers take the next step is when, when now, uh, uh, if, there's an, if there's any doubt and all situations are equal, I'm going to number one because number one shows me he can do this, this, and this. I don't know if that's there yet, and I think that's part of why you haven't seen more productivity out of him. Uh, the kid, uh, who was the kid that went from Iowa to Purdue? Uh, Charlie Jones. Yeah, Charlie Jones. Charlie Jones just played in a game where they threw 47 passes. So Charlie Jones got featured, you know what I mean? He'd become the go-to guy. I'd like to find out how many times Iowa threw 47 passes. And I'm getting that, and it wasn't very often. And how many games? Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I don't know. I don't know. I just know you acquire a certain confidence with a guy throwing the pass. And I'm not sure Andrell has done that yet. So – We'll I mean, like, how many games do I have to get 47 passes from Iowa? Like, three. <laughs> okay, then, then we can yeah. do it. All right, last yeah. one for you, Al. I know J- – J- I don't know how you say your name. I apologize. Since I know he has a bad hand, but would you see Michigan getting back to involving Edwards more in the passing game in the playoffs? Al, this one seems a little – Oh, boy. These are the best questions we've had, Sam. I've These guys have thought about these questions. Are that, or you're just picking the good ones. I don't know. But uh, 
I think how bad the hand is is going to determine a lot of that because they they threw a couple balls to him, you know, a little low per- or yeah. high percentage underneath type deals where you can probably catch those as long as the velocity isn't too great. Uh, but depending on how bad his hand is, if it if it heals up a little bit, I think they'll jump at the chance to get him more involved in some more downfield stuff, you know, because oh my goodness, he is he is the ultimate pro back to me. Yeah. A healthy Donovan Edwards fits like a glove on damn near any NFL team. So if they can do it, you can bet they're going to do it. But I think yeah, he's going to have to prove he can do it. Yeah, the question was, would they involve him more? Yeah, and I, I think, think that's going to dictate it. Yeah, they, they've involved him some. Boy, I think it's risky to involve him more. I could see them doing the same, but more. Be interesting to see if they I don't know. They feel I think where, where the rubber beats the road is how far down the field do they want to throw him the ball? They want to throw those rail routes. Do they want to throw those verticals? Do they want to throw some of the things that he's caught in the past? And I think a lot is going to be dictated on how that hand comes around. Because they don't want to leave any bullets in the gun. You know what I mean? Even 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 at the risk of him being hurt, at this point in the season, you got to fire all your bullets. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, folks, we're going to have to cut this one short so we can get over to the film study, which you'll be able to check out uh, coming up tomorrow. In the meantime, in between time, if you like this breakdown, like these breakdowns and you're watching us on youtube be sure to like the video be sure to subscribe to the channel do the same thing if you're listening to this on our podcast page like the podcast subscribe to the channel of course the best way to show love and support is go visit michiganinsider.com and subscribe there you get the best coverage of michigan football basketball and recruiting around one dollar gets you in your first month and if you're already a monthly great opportunity for you to take advantage of the special deal going on for you right now, you can upgrade to an annual for 50% off. That is a great, great deal and a great perk for you. And once you become a full paying member, once all of your promotional uh, pricing is over, included in your subscription will be Paramount Plus. That is great bang for your buck. And I want to uh, encourage you guys out there. Check out Al's book, Denial Tiger. Give him a review over on Amazon right now. Uh, yeah, I'll Deny the Tiger, story of the 2004 undefeated Auburn Tigers who were denied the opportunity to play for the national championship. That's back when the BCS, which is closer to BS, uh, was in control. I think you'll find the story interesting and uh, not just for Auburn fans. All right. With that, folks, we got to get out of here. Be on the lookout for the breakdown, the live breakdown with Vance coming up later today. Be, able to look, be sure to look out for the film studies coming up tomorrow. Thanks, as always, for watching another edition of the Michigan Football Breakdown focused on the offense with Al Borges. Go Blue! From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Ha! Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount+. Plus. Yes!